my first consequences were minor social relationships, losing friends over my bad behavior, or maybe I failed out of some classes. I sold my instruments, like musical instruments. I, I was a guitar player and a drummer, and I sold those things to, to get heroin. So, so th these are very minor consequences in my experience. So that's 19 years old. By 22, I'm homeless on Skid Row. When I got clean, I, I basically wanted just a job and like maybe a room. And I just wanted these things. I wanted, okay, I want a car. I want a job. I want, a, I want like an apartment. I just thought about tangible items. I didn't realize that there was a lot of intangible things that I would get. Things like loving myself, not wanting to kill myself, self-worth, self-esteem, the ability to be selfless and get a sense of enjoyment of helping others. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 185. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. You need to find a new tribe. Social norms are so powerful and that's why connecting with others on the same path will keep you on track and inspire you to keep going. At Tribe Sober, we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their alcohol-free lives and inspiring others. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. When people get into a dark place with, uh, you know, alcohol, they tend to isolate themselves. And the opposite of that is a community. And the tribe is an unbelievably great community for me. I, I'm able to get a lot of a lot out of the tribe. And I, I try to put some something back into it. And that's why I try to attend as much as I can uh, the, uh, the Zoom cafes and the comments on WhatsApp. You know, the tribe gave me a place to be around like-minded people and hear their stories and get inspired by, you know, people have a cry when someone's really struggling, but really understand that there are people out there that are, you know, are going through this. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest today is Jared Klickstein, an extraordinary young man. His parents were both heroin addicts and he became an addict himself. 
His rock bottom included jail time, homelessness and self-mutilation. But he fought back, he survived and his life today looks very different. I began by asking Jared about his childhood. Yeah, sure. First of all, it's a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, my childhood was unique in that both of my parents were heroin addicts. I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and my parents were off and on drug addicts throughout their lives. But around the time I was about five, six, seven, they started really getting into it and becoming daily heroin users and eventually daily crack cocaine users. Yeah, so I had the front row seat to, to what drug addiction was very early on, and, and I didn't entirely understand what was happening until I was probably nine or 10, and then I, I understood that they were on drugs. And yeah, it was hectic. It, it, was, it was traumatic. I still think I had a pretty decent childhood. There wasn't a lot of violence. My father sold drugs, so there was usually money. I was always fed. Um, they were arrested when I was 12 and I was adopted by my aunt in Oakland, California. So I moved to Oakland, California and uh, basically got rescued by, by my aunt. Yeah. Your mom died, didn't she, of heroin overdose when you were about 14, was it? 14 or 15. And that, that yeah, triggered your drug use, didn't it? Obviously, you must have been in, in so much pain. Because of what you'd seen with your family, that was a coping mechanism that you'd subconsciously learned. Yes. Yeah. She died when I was 14. I didn't really emotionally react a lot. I guess that was a defense mechanism. I just shut down. I discovered alcohol very shortly after and was basically a, like a functional alcoholic from 14, 15, uh, throughout the remainder of high school. I didn't drink every day, but I drank every chance I could get. And that was mostly the weekends. And, and I experienced consequences. I experienced scholastic consequences. I got arrested a few times. They were minor consequences in comparison to when I started using drugs. Yeah. And when did you start using heroin? About 18, 19 years old. I started using Oxycontin yeah. when I was 18 I was very against heroin. Obviously, my parents yeah. were heroin addicts. I was incredibly fearful of it. I went to college. People were smoking heroin, and I was incredibly against it. But there was also Oxycontin floating around, and I didn't know what Oxycontin was, but it was a pill made by a pharmaceutical company, so I assumed it was safe. Quickly, I got extremely addicted to it, and I found out that it's essentially it's very similar to heroin. Yeah. And that's what I've heard. Uh, it is heroin. Yeah. So I, I couldn't afford it very quickly. And I switched to heroin about 19 years old. Wow. You said in one of your brilliant articles, you said alcohol made you feel like you fit in, whereas heroin made you feel like you didn't exist. I thought that was a very interesting statement. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, certainly. I discovered alcohol and alcohol made me feel like I was a different person. It made me feel like I was better looking, taller, didn't have a terrible childhood. I could be someone else. I could f create a, a persona that fit into a social setting and uh, fit into this world, really. I mean, I could be somebody else that didn't have the tragic story that I had. 
Whereas when I found heroin, it basically shut off my identity. When you use heroin, at least for me, it was like I was purchasing 12 hours of not really being a human or, or not have consciousness. And that's not to say that I was asleep on my bed or whatever. I just don't even remember. I don't remember life during those 12 hours, but I functioned. And when alcohol can do that, I'm sure I would have gotten to that point with alcohol, but heroin sped up that process. And I, I never really loved like cocaine or acid or the, these things that enhanced emotions. They amplified emotions mm. or feelings. Heroin for me did not amplify anything. It, it completely numbed the state of existence. Yeah. So it's almost like you take a break from things that are going on because yeah. alcohol is more of a social drug, isn't it? Until, of course, we get to having blackouts with alcohol, which happens. But yeah, yeah. interesting difference there. So you really had a, a decade, didn't you, of drug taking? And you say the drop in effectiveness correlated with the increase in consequences. So talk to us about some of those consequences of your decade of drug taking. Sure. Yeah. So as heroin was incredibly effective at first and it was enjoyable, I had a girlfriend, I was in college, I was going to classes and it was somewhat manageable and it was incredibly effective at making me disappear. My first consequences were minor social relationships, losing friends over my bad behavior, or maybe I failed out of some classes. I sold my instruments, like musical instruments. I, I was a guitar player and a drummer, and I sold those things to, to get heroin. So, so th these are very minor consequences in my experience. So that's 19 years old. By 22, I'm homeless on Skid Row. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. But heroin is still very effective. The consequences are I now sleep outside. I now don't have a single family member that will talk to me. And I'm basically completely shattered in, in terms of uh, structure in, in my life. I sleep outside. I don't have a credit card. I don't have a debit card. I don't know how I'm going to eat. It's still relatively effective, but as the years uh, went on, it started to not work that well. Heroin started to not do what I wanted it to do, which was to completely numb me from reality. And uh, reality was penetrating through heroin quite easily by the time I'm 25, 26. I can put up with homelessness, but eventually I'm using multiple drugs. I'm using heroin, crack cocaine, met methamphetamine, and I eventually start experiencing health consequences and lengthy jail sentences. So I start going to jail and I still don't consider that a very heavy consequence, but I didn't have a terrible time in there. But eventually I found myself blacking out like an alcoholic almost when I would combine mm. my, my drugs and I would wake up in terrible situations where I actually am missing my toe. I woke up missing one of my toes one time and... I woke up after getting into a fight, some sort of, I don't know, altercation where maybe a, a knife was used and I actually have a pretty significant uh, facial scar. I was missing part of my lip. They had to remove part of it and I had to get reconstructive surgery, reconstructive plastic surgery. And, and that was the end all be all consequence for me. 
prior to death. I've not died, but so yeah, I basically started experiencing consequences on a cosmic level where I've lost two body parts. (laughs) Was it the loss of those body parts that made you think, I can't do this anymore. I've got to find a way out. Yeah. Was that your thought process then? I started flirting with the idea of getting clean and, and I would do it for two months, three months here Mm -hmm. and there. And then I would relapse. And in my last two relapses were these two events where I lost uh, a body part. It was becoming very clear that when I relapse, it's not just I lose my house or I lose my job. It's like I lose a body part. And I'm very lucky that it was just a toe and then it was part of my face, but they reconstructed it. Yeah. The universe can take what it wants from me, like a house or Mm -hmm. a job or food. And I'm willing to put up with that. Yeah. Um, But I basically wasn't willing to put up with the body parts. Thank goodness for that. (laughs) Yeah. I know it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I love it when you say that. I so understand. I mean, I'm I'm not in your league, if that's the right expression, but I've also been brought quite low and had a a real struggle to get out of my alcohol dependence. But now I I look back on that and think it was a blessing. It's the best thing that I ever did because being forced to the wall like that, it forces you to rebuild your life in a different way. And that's what I did. That's what many people in our community have done. So talk us into how you did get clean. We're going to talk about rehabs. I'm very interested in your view on rehabs. Tell us about the the rehab you went to with acupuncture and a pool (laughs) where where they gave Uh, you Steroquel and you were out. I went to a rehab in 2011 when I was 22, right before I became homeless. I had a family member that basically said, I'll help you get into rehab one time. And that's it. And I had health insurance. So I I went to a a fancy rehab. I actually went to a rehab that that is quite reputable. It's not even that bad of a rehab in comparison to other rehabs in in the Los Angeles area. But they basically pampered us and they gave us five-star meals and took us to museums and the beach and all that. But, But more importantly, we all had to see a doctor that was associated with the rehab and they put us on six or seven medications, one of them being Seroquel. And this was everybody was yeah, put on Seroquel. On the, and everybody on the same drugs, I think, which makes no sense at all. Each of you see the doctor, they prescribe you the same drugs, essentially just to over-medicate you so you're calm and don't complain and are you're meek, basically. You're like a meek mm-hmm. patient that won't leave. because no they trouble. Don't leave. Yeah. They want to milk yeah. your insurance, don't they? Yeah. So it's not that they want to mistreat you in there. It's just mm. that they want they don't want you to leave because effective rehabs are often not places that people want to stay at. And, and a lot of people at this rehab weren't like homeless and weren't mm. they weren't at their wits end. So yeah. they were very willing to leave if it wasn't a fun time. Right. Um, this was a good rehab yeah. in comparison to most of the a lot of rehab. I've worked at I worked at a rehab briefly where we basically just drugged people up and kept them in a mansion and didn't even take them outside. And we were charging these people $3,000 a day. I worked there for a few months Mm -hmm. and didn't really like doing that. But this is how rehabs operate when the incentive is to just keep them there as long as possible. And you didn't have any therapy or... Any, I mean, I had a case. Did you have, did they try and teach you coping skills for when you left? 
Certainly. This was a good rehab Mm. uh, in comparison to these other rehabs or or quote unquote good rehab. And I had a case manager and we had group therapy and we did some, listen, they took me to meetings and and that's really what it it planted the seed of of 12 step stuff. And I was introduced to that concept and and, and that, that was, that's why it was a good rehab, but I don't know. It just didn't work. And I eventually my insurance lapsed and they kicked me out. (laughs) It was like, off Uh, you go now. Yeah. And then I get it. You have to pay for things. I was a terrible client. I got high a lot. I relapsed a ton of times. They didn't kick me out. Of course, when my insurance lapsed, I expected them to kick me out. So talk to us about the rehab that helped you, that saved you really, wasn't it? It's a state-funded rehab where you stayed quite a long time. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So I went to jail in like 2000. 15 to 2016, and I kicked heroin in jail. Was in there for like six months, horrific detox, but I actually prefer it that way. I prefer to detox with no meds. It was a clean detox, and I enjoyed it, and I never got strung out again on heroin, although I did relapse. Jail helped me get off heroin, but it didn't help me not relapse or not use mm, periodic. It didn't help well. you rebuild your life, really, did it? Yeah. I was very lucky after my toe incident where I woke up where where I was missing my toe. I had a friend who got me into one of these nonprofit rehabs in Los Angeles. I think there's four of them in Los Angeles County. And these places rely on donations, private donations. And then also midway through the decade, they started accepting state insurance. So technically it's state funding. This rehab is not fancy. There was no hot tubs or anything. And it was almost built like a jail. And it was all, there's probably 80 beds, 90 beds. There's a lot of people here. And the biggest component when I arrived was that they'll kick you out. If you have an attitude or if you don't want to do what they want you to do, they just kick you out because they don't need you. You need them. They don't need you. So there must be waiting lists, I imagine. (laughs) There there are waiting lists, yes. And that attitude is established very quickly. And no one's going to pamper you at this place. And, and they don't uh, give and you, you drugs, to, hopefully. They'll take you to the psych doctor, but they don't have like an in-house psych doctor that just gives you seroquel. Yeah, they, they don't knock they you out. Yeah. Yeah. So of course people are on medications, <laughs> yeah. but they, they send you to a doctor, a real right. doctor. A real and, doctor. Uh, wow. Fancy that. Yeah. Yeah. So of course some people were on some psych meds or, or whatever, but he had to work work in the kitchen or work in the janitorial services. And it was your house. So you had to contribute. And if you didn't want to do that, they just kicked you out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, I like it. Tough love. I, yeah. 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 I think it really helps to know that they'll kick you out. When you pay someone $60,000 for a month of rehab, they're going to do everything in their power not to kick you out Yeah, and, and to make you not leave. So that was what was very different about this place because th- this place was technically nonprofit. They paid their staff, obviously, and but they didn't make money. And not only that, it was long term. I stayed there for four months, which is pretty long for, for rehab. Rehabs in L- Los Angeles cost between thirty and sixty thousand dollars a month. If you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you can stay in rehab for four months. But this place didn't charge me anything. And, and you said in one of your articles that they, they became like your family which I think it's really yeah. nice. That connection, it's so powerful, isn't it? Connection is the opposite of addiction, and you had connection yeah. there. It was a place for people that had lost every connection. It was yeah. the end of the, it was the, end so of the line. So you connected with each other. 
Yeah. And they encouraged you to basically stay within, once you graduated, they highly incentivized you to stay within a 10 block radius of the building. They had many associated sober livings. And a very key thing was that being homeless, I didn't have any money. I arrived with no money. And at, a, at about two and a half months there, they let me start looking for work. And I got a job. And then they let me live there for a month for free while going to work so that when you leave, you have two grand, three grand. Yeah. And that way you can go to, to a sober living. I bought a car. I mm. bought like a $1,200 car. And then I had money for sober living. That created a sense of self-esteem and self-worth. So you're in a sober living associated with the facility, and they basically encourage you to come back and hang out all the time and, yeah. and to help out. So when you have a car, they ask you if you can take clients out to meetings or take mm -hmm. them out to get lunch or dinner, and that's what I did. I was basically handed a family, a very large family. <laughs> I actually was there like two weeks ago because okay. I, I live in Texas, but I am in California right now. And, and yeah. I walk in and everyone knows me. It's my family. And of course, since I've gotten clean, I, I, I've gotten my family back or some of my family back. And I have a family now. Yeah. I have my family back. But, Your dad? Um, Your dad? Yeah, I have my dad and I awesome. have some distant relatives that, yeah. that are now close relatives. and, and um, But I also have this... They basically gave, provided me with a sense of connection and love yeah. when no one was around to, to give that to me. Yeah. And I had no one left. And it was basically a building of people that were in the same position. Yeah. You know? And that's what I love about the recovery space, actually. People are honest and open and vulnerable, aren't they? There's no bullshit because we all understand each other and we understand the struggles. There's such a connection quite quickly, I find. Yeah, immediately. There, there's an yeah. incredible spiritual connection with yeah. people that have suffered in similar ways. Yeah. That, and, yeah. Yeah. and we, we genuinely want the best for each other. I always sense that as well. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. Let's talk about your awesome writing. So you okay. were going through operations, which you managed to get free that were practicing on you when you had yes. to have your yes. face fixed. You, you wrote that you began to write a book and you'd planned that this book was going to be your suicide letter. So you were still in quite a dark place when you started that writing. Yes. But obviously you chose life. There you are. And, yep. and here we are five years into sobriety and you say that your life has grown into something beyond your wildest dreams, which is beautiful and I'm so happy for you. I wondered if you'd just tell us a bit about your life today and what kind of things do you appreciate the most? Sure. When I started writing the book, I was in a very dark place and essentially assumed that the surgeries weren't going to go well and I was going to look terrible. And I was fortunate to have a sober friend that let me live with her for about seven months while I was getting the surgeries. And I figured I was going to kill myself. So I, I started writing a novella almost of what happened. This is why I'm going to kill myself. And many versions later and many drafts later, it's turned into a memoir with policy suggestions and stuff. So it's completely changed. But when I got clean, I 
I basically wanted just a job and like maybe a room and I just wanted these things. I wanted, okay, I want a car. I want a job. I want to, I want like an apartment. I just thought about tangible items. I didn't realize that there was a lot of intangible things that I would get. Things like loving myself, not wanting to kill myself, self-worth, self-esteem, the ability to be selfless and get a sense of enjoyment of helping others. I didn't know my experience could be utilized to help people in any way. I, I just didn't know. And, and I got my family back. I got a, a network of friends that I'll have until the day I die. I was like a blue collar guy. And I just thought because of my facial scar and because of my resume and my criminal record, I'd never really amounted anything besides doing some construction. And through that rehab, one of the donors owned a visual effects company and we remained close. And I went to school at night for some visual effects stuff. And I eventually got a job in visual effects. I never thought like I'd be anyone other than like picking up garbage on a construction site. Now I have a pretty cool job. And maybe my career is even going to sprout out into something bigger. I want to get into maybe consulting on policy or maybe get into politics or maybe open up a nonprofit rehab. These things are possible. Yeah. And, and uh, had no idea. Yeah. I just had no idea. Yeah. I love what yeah. you say about you just wanted a room and a job, yet you get so much. You deserve it. Let's go back to the rehabs. Sorry to go on about yeah. rehabs, but I'm, I'm just so shocked. I just wanted to read something from one of your articles for the listeners. You say, the rehab industry has become nothing more than a glorified insurance scam with a terrible success rate despite making billions upon billions of dollars. Could you imagine paying $30,000 for something that doesn't work 95% of the time, yet new rehabs are popping up almost daily with no sign of slowing? How can this happen, and why is nobody regulating these places? I'm not sure, because you think the insurance companies would be the number one watchdogs on this. They, they don't want to just pay out $30,000 mm. again and again. I don't understand why they are not doing something about this, but I think that insurance companies in America are heavily subsidized by the federal government and they don't really care because they're actually not technically losing money. We actually do have a pretty odd health insurance situation in America where it's incredibly expensive, yet the insurance companies get subsidized by the government. It just makes no sense. I mean, there's many rehabs where they will actually give you drugs so you test dirty so they can bill your insurance for another month because a lot of insurance companies won't extend your stay unless you relapse. A lot of rehabs, cases of sexual assaults, almost organized sexual assault rings. That's essentially what they are. Some of these places have been caught in these scandals. I like the free market. I'm not a communist or anything. I, I think that the free market pr produces competition and usually better products. But in terms of rehab, I don't think it does. No, I, agree uh, I don't think you. you can purchase recovery. I know people with millions of dollars, they can't get sober. You can't pay for it. Mm. You could pay to be locked in a room and be forced to stay sober. You Eventually, you'd have to come out of the room. <laughs> yeah, it's a psychological, it's a mindset. It's not a, a tangible product. And that's why I think it really has to be like a, a state-sponsored sort of nonprofit situation. Yeah. 
we have AA meetings in America. This was a problem where people would come to the AA meetings and look for newcomers and say, what kind of insurance do you have? And they'd say, oh, I have Kaiser insurance. And they'd say, I'll give you $500 right now if you go to go get high and go relapse, as long as you agree to come to my rehab. <clears throat> and then if you finish the 30 days and stay, I'll give you another $1,500. That was a business. That was a profession where people would professionally go to rehab. And then, and then people start dying. You give someone $500 to go get high and they're going to get some fentanyl and they're going to die. They could die. And uh, that was just like a normal thing five years ago. Are you, are you going to write about this stuff in your book? Uh, yeah, some of that, that stuff is in my book and I'm talking about it because I don't think people really understand. They don't. You know, because I deal with people. I have friends that are trying to get sober and I talk to their families and their families don't believe me. Hmm? You know, I'm telling them, you got to stop sending them to these Yeah. I said, I can get them into a rehab. It won't even cost money, but they don't want to take my suggestion. They want to, They said, my doctor said that we should go to this place. And it's your doctor is probably getting a kickback from that rehab. Is. I mean, it's, it's, people have so much faith in- In the medical, medical. profession. Yeah. 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 It's, it's all those and, white coats. Yeah. <laughs> they dazzle us. No, you cannot, there's no amount of money that you can spend to get an education on alcoholism or drug addiction- other than having it. You can learn a lot about it, but you're never going to have as much knowledge about it as people that have actually endured it. No, I agree. Uh, and that's not saying that, listen, I'll never know how it feels like, I, I don't, I'll never know what it feels like to be uh, transgender. I just mm -hmm. won't know what that feels like because I'm not. And th therefore I don't know, I'm not an expert on it. Mm -hmm. I'll never be an expert on it. And uh, I think the same goes for addiction. If someone's listening to this and they need to go to rehab and say they're in California, LA, how do they find a reputable one? There's about four, I'd say, out of maybe a thousand <laughs> in, in Los Angeles County. This is the problem with America. If you are broke and make no money, you have everything. You have the best health insurance in California. If you make minimum wage, you don't qualify for state healthcare. A lot of people don't qualify for, and then in which case you have to go to one of these for-profit rehabs. But fortunately, a lot of drug addicts end up in that bracket of having no income and can qualify for the state insurance. If you have the state ins insurance and you're in LA County, I would go to, well, there's four rehabs. There's Tarzana Treatment Center, there's Claire Foundation, and there's Impact. And those are the four. And then there's a bunch of other ones, and some of the for-profit rehabs are good. But I, I don't think they're good for, like, rock-bottom drug addicts. No. They're good if you still have your family supporting you, and you can take a month off from work and all that, or if you still have a job. And But hopefully, we you know, across this country soon, given that we're – I don't know what it's, what it's like where you are, but we have a lot of fentanyl right now, and it's becoming a, a crazy epidemic of death. Yeah. And I'm hoping that we, in the next five years or so, have a national network of, hey, do you – are you homeless or are you on drugs or whatever? And you can just walk into this place yeah, and we'll get you into this program and uh, get you off drugs. And do you, you feel there's any political will to do this? Actually, as of the last three months, I do. And I didn't feel like that prior to three months ago. I'm in California right now. It's not a, a dystopian hellscape. A lot of people say it is. 
but parts of it are not good and parts of it are a dystopian hellscape. I walked through San Francisco and mm-hmm. there are some great neighborhoods. I love San Francisco. There are some neighborhoods that look like Mad Max, worse than Mad Max. And it's horrific with the people that are just being incentivized to kill themselves in the streets. And fortunately, the governor, Gavin Newsom, he wants to be president. And his campaign must have taken some kind of poll and asked Californians, what's your number one issue? And I'm assuming they said drug addiction and or street drug addiction and crime. So his tune changed. He did a 180 about two or three months ago. And now it seems to be something that he's very concerned with. And that's okay. Even if it comes from an ingenuine place of just Mm -hmm. wanting to advance his career, as long as it does something good, I'll support him 100%. And if you were a powerful politician or even the president, what would you do about the homelessness, the addiction? Where would you start? I would get FEMA involved. That's like our national emergency organization where they come in when there's hurricanes or when there's tornadoes or whatever. I would withhold federal funding from any state that has policies that incentivize crime and incentivizes homelessness and incentivizes addiction. We'd have to build the infrastructure for shelters, uh, permanent treatment. We have a lot of prisons. Now, that sounds bad. I don't want to put a bunch of people in prison, but I'm just saying we already have the buildings. Most of the people in prison did what they did as a result of drug addiction. We should just turn some of these places into long-term treatment centers and job training facilities where we give people the chance to make a livable wage, Treat, basically evaluate them, see what their strengths are. Are they, do they have good spatial intelligence? Maybe they'll be good in a, a trade, like a construction trade and train them how to do this and maybe feed them into unions and get, get good paying jobs. And then obviously do therapeutic uh, treatment in these facilities. I think it has to be a national situation yeah. because say that 49 of the 50 U.S. states agree, but one state doesn't, California, a lot of drug addicts and, ho- and homeless drug addicts will migrate to California. It's already happening. The homeless drug addicts in San Francisco are not from San Francisco. A big problem is that politicians and a lot of people, honestly, don't take into consideration human incentive. If you incentivize bad behavior, you're going to get bad behavior. Uh, If you incentivize good behavior, you're going to get more good behavior. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. You've got some great ideas. Do you feel that you can dialogue with some powerful people? Would they listen to someone like you? I think we're on the precipice of them being willing to listen to people like me. It's not a disaster in in places like San Francisco, but it's gotten bad enough that powerful people are leaving. The the Mm -hmm. tax base is leaving. I know everyone hates rich people, but someone has to pay the taxes. It can't just be a city of drug addicts. It's approaching a situation where they will not have the tax revenue to support their incredibly wasteful and bloated budget. In California, the same way, just on a larger level, on a state level, people are leaving. People are leaving. I left. 
Not that I'm any huge net positive or anything, but a lot of businesses are leaving and politicians are going to start realizing that they've basically given the keys of the car like radical harm reduction, neo communists. I don't know. I don't know what else to call them. <laughs> but when it comes to treating a homelessness and addiction, and it's not that it's stayed the same, gotten 10 times worse. Yeah. I think it's time to hand the keys over to somebody else, maybe someone that was homeless or, or, uh, or at least listen to somebody that was yeah. formerly homeless, formerly addicted. Yeah. I think politicians are on the brink of listening to people like me because they're going to get voted out yeah, and their states are going to clap. Because listen, this is, I love San Francisco. I love the Bay Area. I love California. Mm. It's incredibly beautiful. You can't throw this place in the garbage. No, but the combination of, of someone like you with your ideas and your experience and a powerful politician that has got a good heart, things could change big time, couldn't they? Yeah, Not they even could. a good heart, as you say. Maybe he just wants to be president and he sees that this will lead to a lot of votes. As you well, say, yeah. when the tech people leave San Francisco, it's going to be very different, isn't it? And I know every everybody hates them, I know. But not only do they pay huge amounts of taxes, but their companies employ a large portion of the population with high-paying jobs. Yeah, between yeah. Google and Facebook, that's uh, that's a lot of jobs, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of these companies have basically reinstated work-from-home policies because Employees don't feel safe going to the office. Listen, I walked through there. I thought it was okay. You know, the downtown is not yeah, pretty. Yeah, but you're it's pretty not... streetwise, Jared, I imagine. Yeah. So I, I have to take that into account. Okay. Yeah. I, I was homeless in San Francisco. If you're paying 5000 American dollars for a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, you want to not get stabbed on your way to work. Because the you property know, is incredibly expensive, isn't it? From what I've heard, it's to buy a house expensive. in San Francisco, it's millions, isn't it? Millions upon millions of dollars. And then you pop into Starbucks and you get mugged and <laughs> get stabbed on your way yeah. home. It's not good. Or just not your good. kids have to watch you know, smoking crack or smoking fentanyl. It's, it's not good. You've got to find that politician, Jared. We're all relying on you. Thank you. I, I think it could happen. Uh, I do. I'm I do. making some headway. So Plus your book, uh, have you got a publisher now? I do have a publisher. Um, Fantastic. They, I just submitted my final edit and they're reading through it. It, it should be out in 2024. That's wonderful. So it's yeah. going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. So I listened to your interview with Loretta Bruining and you didn't have a publisher then. So you're making progress. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and putting your writing on Substack's great, you know, because sending us all little teasers and I can't wait to read the whole lot now. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So it's going to be called The Crooked Smile still? Yeah, Crooked Smile. Mm. And uh, this is a corny title on its face. But it's very relevant to my where I got my surgery. I'm very blessed that I ended up where I ended up at that hospital and they provided me free surgery. Was that where you were taken after your your incident to, uh, in the bath, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I was you were taken to, taken to that hospital. Wow. That is yeah. very fortunate. Yeah. You're blessed. You're meant oh, to very. do something amazing in this life. Well, thank you. What would you say to someone listening to this who is on drugs or maybe they're hectic alcoholic and they don't they can't believe that they'll ever they've got no hope. Well, what would you say to them to give them hope? I would say that I relate. I was that person for many years. I felt 
terminally unique and different from other drug addicts and alcoholics. I felt that I was just on a different plane of addiction where there was no cure for me. And not that there's a cure for anybody. There's a, there's a spiritual system of a daily maintenance of keeping this affliction at bay. But I thought that wasn't for me. And basically what had to happen to me was insane consequences because I didn't come out the gate experiencing extreme consequences like I explained. I hope that they can find some inspiration in my story that the consequences increase in severity as the effectiveness of the drugs decline. And uh, you don't have to hit that point. You can really turn this around. You don't have to lose your toe or lose part of your face. And I hope that you can find inspiration in my story and that my suggestion would be to basically assume that nothing, become humble. Humble yeah. humility is the number one rule with this thing, in my opinion. And, and the second you're willing to really accept that the way you think things are may not be, be the way things are, and that you're just going to sit down and listen for a few months and put every concept, preconceived concept in your head out the window. And when you're willing to do that, a spark will ignite a flame within your spirit and, and something changes. And yeah, I think um, re reaching out for help is the most, the hardest thing, isn't it really? But reach course. out for help, get that connection and then listen, as you say. And just stick like glue to people that have done it. Yeah. And follow in their footsteps. Yeah. And listen, they are not Be perfect inspired. <laughs> no, but they're clean. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Which gives so, them a flying start. Thank you so much, Jared. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Do you mind if people contact you? Is there, what's the best way they could yeah. contact you? Yeah, that's totally fine. I'm on Twitter. It's at Jared Clickstein. So you can reach out to me there. If you want to email me, I can give my email. It's jklickst at gmail.com. Okay. Do you think there's anything we haven't talked about that you want to mention? No, that, that covered pretty much everything. And, and I just want to thank you for this opportunity. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your amazing story with us, Jared. Let's pull out some key points. Both of Jared's parents were drug addicts, but although life was chaotic, they did manage to parent Jared until they got arrested when he was just 12 years old. Then he went to live with his aunt, who rescued him, as he puts it. Sadly, his mother died of her heroin addiction when he was 14 years old. That led him to using alcohol to cope with the pain of losing her. He describes himself as a functioning alcoholic from the age of 15. At the age of 18, he started using OxyContin as he was very against heroin due to his parents' experience. He didn't actually know what OxyContin was. But because it was a pill made by a pharmaceutical company, he assumed it was safe. He quickly became addicted and discovered that it's very similar to heroin. Whereas alcohol had helped him to feel more confident and enabled him to socialise, heroin completely numbed his feelings. As he says, cocaine or acid can amplify emotions, whereas with heroin he felt he was purchasing 12 hours of oblivion. Jared continued to use heroin, but as he puts it, the effects diminished as the consequences increased. 
these consequences included selling his possessions to get heroin and at the age of 22, he was homeless and living on Skid Row. Heroin was still effective in completely numbing him from the reality, the reality that he was homeless, penniless and without a family member to turn to. However, by the age of 25, reality was getting through, so he began taking multiple drugs to block it out. The consequences got more and more serious and he ended up spending time in jail and suffering serious health problems. He would black out and wake up with injuries. He would self-harm when he was blacked out. Once he woke up and he'd lost a toe. Another time he woke up with serious facial injuries. That was when he finally decided to consider the idea of getting clean, which he eventually did via a state-funded rehab where he lived for four months. There are only four state-funded rehabs in California, and many, many more for-profit rehabs. And on the subject of rehabs, Jared gave us some shocking information about corruption in the rehab industry. When Jared got clean, he longed for tangible things. He wanted a job and somewhere to live. He had no idea of the intangible benefits that would come his way. A sense of self-worth, the ability to love himself, and the joy from helping others. Apart from helping others to get clean, Jared is influencing policy decisions and feels there is currently a political will to change the situation. People and companies are leaving California, which is reducing tax income, which is forcing politicians to come up with solutions. And that's why he feels that politicians are open to dialogue with someone like him, someone who understands addiction and homelessness from the inside. Jared has plenty of ideas to bring about social change, which he writes about in his book, The Crooked Smile, which will be published in 2024. His articles can be read via Substack. He's on Twitter, at Jared Clickstein, and his email is jklickst at gmail.com. I'll put the links in the show notes. And let me finish by reading out a couple of messages from one of the Tribe Sober chat rooms. This one's from Robin in South Africa. Today is the one-month mark for me. The point I just couldn't get beyond last year. It's such a good feeling to be here without any intention of drinking again. I'm wary of the odd cravings sneaking up on me, but I haven't had a serious one in about two weeks. Last night, for a few minutes, I did miss the easy route to relaxation plus dopamine it provided, but I didn't consider having one, and the moment passed. I couldn't have done it without this support group. And a lovely reply from Roz in Spain. Hi Robin, huge congrats on one month. I remember my one month. I was so pleased and excited, but also terrified that I was going to blow it. I remember one occasion where I reached for the wine bottle and I was just going to add a splash to my water. It was my husband who said, why would you do that? I knew I needed more, so I did the masterclass and four sessions of coaching. And yesterday I celebrated 800 days. I still need to pinch myself. 
Wishing everybody the best Sober Wednesday. We can all do this, whatever stage we're at. Yes, it gets easier. I can vouch for that. And the pink cloud is still around. Well done, everyone. Thank you, Roz, for the inspiration. So if you're ready to join our community and get inspired, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. And I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So go to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.